It's episode 101 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is web standards pioneer, Aaron Gustafson. He works as an advocate for standards and accessibility at Microsoft, and is the author of the seminal book, Adaptive Web Design. We're going to talk about the new challenges and opportunities made available with progressive web apps. Aaron, what a pleasure to have, a, have you on the show. Yeah, it's, it's great to uh, get to hang out with you a bit. Even better, it's episode 101. I'm super into palindromes, so that's, uh, that's awesome. There you go. Perfect. What's your favorite palindrome? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. That's a really good question. How about race car? Race, car's race cars. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Race car, radar. Those are always good ones. Yep. That's great. Um, hey, uh, what, you're at uh, Microsoft now. How long have you been there? I'm coming up on six years, I think. I think it's pretty wild. It may have been uh, at least that long ago since the last time that uh, you and I were both at uh, probably an event apart, uh, yeah, you know, giving yeah. talks, uh, Seattle or uh, Atlanta or something like that. I, I can't quite remember, but it's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a hot minute for those, sure. Uh, those, they're still, Jeffrey and uh, Eric are still going with those shows virtually now, right? I believe yeah, they're, yeah. they're doing some interesting things with online um, community and, and stuff. But um, the span of the, the shows that they have done is just remarkable. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty amazing to kind of look back at the history of that particular conference and, um, and just think of all of the, the thought that went into putting together each of the kind of packages, because I really do feel like the, that thought, the thought that goes into creating each of those events is pretty astounding. There's always a thread that gets pulled through each of the talks. It's not like some conferences you show up at and it's just kind of like slapdash, like jumping one, one way and then another way. And just, uh, you know, kind of all over the place, you know, not necessarily bad content, but, um, it's not like you're being taken on a ride. And I always feel right. like there's a lot of uh, intentionality with how they program an event apart. And I, I think they do a fantastic job with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're a great couple of guys too. Good friends. Um, not a sponsorship. I just really like them. <laughs> but you should go. It's good. It's great content. It's good stuff. It keeps kind of uh, keep you up on the, on the edge of what's going on, which is frankly the reason that I wanted to have you on the program. Uh, because, you know, you, you and I have been talking about this stuff that's like how to deliver content through a web browser uh, for a long, long time. Uh, and every few years, like a bunch of stuff changes. The core always remains the same. We can talk about some of those basic principles, and I'd love to. But the technology changes, and it, and it seems to just keep getting better and better. Sometimes it veers off into the really complex, but ultimately, like... Uh, it just feels like we're at a much, much more mature place with how we deliver content through web browsers today uh, than, you know, uh, a de say a decade ago. So, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, a lot of stuff is cyclical. Um, we see a lot, of, a lot of the things that we were doing back when we were actually dealing with like, you know, 28.8 baud modems and stuff like that, <laughs> the, you know, all the, the dial-up days, you know, some of those same... Um, lessons we learned in that era, you know, have certainly borne fruit in the mobile era. And, you know, as we start to, to move into uh, bringing the internet to more and more of the world, um, you know, th those sorts of lessons come back again and again. Of course, some folks still struggle to learn um, and, and kind of fight the, uh, the grain of the web. Um, yeah, yeah, that's but, true. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that, you know, the, uh, how cyclical it really is. Um, I, I don't know how I, I got here, but I, I was on a Wikipedia page for 
the generalized markup language, which was mm-hmm. basically like the first time some researchers at IBM uh, wanted to essentially like use text in a computer in a way that wasn't just data driven. Right. And they were yep. trying to figure out like, how do we model documents and like, and mm-hmm. how would, how would you display those documents and things like that? And they had H1 tags and paragraph tags and the LI tag for lists. And I was like, this is 1969. This is yep. 50 years ago that the origins yeah. of this with, with this concept of, Hey, wait a minute. What if you just describe the content and then use a whole different system for displaying it and you keep those things separate it turns out that you the content has a lot longer life. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. And here it's we are 50 years later still working on that yeah. problem. Yep. Throw it all in JavaScript now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. But uh, I just find that remarkable that mm-hmm. um, that this idea of, I don't know, I guess a, a, a little bit, it's easy to get wowed by what we can do on this big network, you know, like what's going viral on TikTok or who's streaming on Twitch or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, we kind of forget that, like, we just want to put something out in the world. And would it be great if everyone could see it? Mm-hmm. And it feels like so much of your work has been kind of like on that basic principle. Can can everybody just see this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really honestly believe the the whole ethos of the web from the beginning with Tim Berners Lee, you know, saying like this is for everybody, right? Like this this is supposed to be something that empowers everyone to communicate with everyone else, and that we can actually capture, you know, maybe not the totality of human knowledge, but you know, a, a good chunk of it. Um, which is why I'm always sad when when sites disappear, like when yeah. GeoCities went and AngelFire and kind of all those those you know early. Um, networks and and um, what was the the term the web rings and stuff like that oh, yeah. you know all that that early the early fan sites and stuff um, you know some of that is is probably of debatable quality but you know the the reality is that people took time to kind of do their own cave paintings on the web right like they're <laughs> they're, they're, they're I was here um, and a lot of that stuff has been lost to the ages. Yeah, that's interesting. Even Tim Berners-Lee's his first proposal is thirty years old this year, isn't it? Like, wasn't yeah, it nineteen ninety one? I think that he was like he he asked his boss for some money because he wanted to make a hypertext system. Yep, uh, and it turns out it worked, it worked pretty well. Yeah. So, like I said, uh, I, I I like to catch up every few years, see what's going on uh, in the world of kind of web development. What, what are browsers up to? What are the web standards up to? I. Uh, did some work a long time ago on the Web Standards Committee uh, with the W3C for the uh, CSS and HTML uh, way back uh, in the 90s. Uh, but you're still really involved in that stuff. Like if you're doing that yep. with Microsoft and kind of um, uh, still waving that banner. So uh, mm-hmm. so I, kind of the broadest question I can ask, but what are the state of things right now? Like what's going on? Well, let's see. You you started out when you were was it WebMonkey? Was that where you were at? Yeah, Wired Magazine. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and doing online and, and stuff with WebMonkey. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff back in the very early days. Um, well, a few things have changed since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think you know it's it's one of those things. You know, having having interacted with the W three C over the years, and also having been in the Web Standards Project, which uh, you were also in, involved with, if I remember correctly, back yep. in the, the early days as well with with um, everyone there. It, it's been interesting because there's really been an ebb and flow in the web design and development community in terms of their 
level of engagement and knowledge, awareness, et cetera, with web standards. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people kind of initially glommed onto whatever a, a browser had put out as like, you know, this was Netscape's version of HTML. And then they came out with JavaScript and then IE had their version of JavaScript and they had a few peculiar HTML tags that they supported. And, you know, then things finally started to, to kind of coalesce in the, the like late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, I remember working on a project in 99 that we literally had a bespoke style sheet for IE Netscape opera, like it was, it was <laughs> yep. ridiculous. And, and so like, that was why I started gravitating towards web standards. Um, and, and started seeing kind of the promise of, of like some consistency, right. It would, it would be as though like every TV manufacturer was creating completely different dimensions of, of TVs. And we felt a little bit of that pain in the transition over to widescreen televisions when all of a sudden, you know, the, the shows that, that were shot in, you know, three by four were all of a sudden, you know, either really stretched out and looked really wonky or were letterboxed in weird ways and stuff like right. that. Right. Um, but that's the wild west that we lived in on the web for, you know, and, and still live in to, to a large degree. But I think the, the tools that we have at our disposal now to be able to have that core content, that core experience that, that users need, whether it's to, you know, access information about their local government or to access their bank account, all those sorts of things. Um, we now have the tools to be able to adapt those core experiences to work on pretty much any device, whether it's, you know, a, a cheap mobile phone that somebody's you know using on a a you know not great network, you know, somewhere in the the middle of America or somewhere elsewhere around the world, um, or whether they're on a fridge or whether they're on <laughs> like their their uh, you know high speed desktop or or the latest you know latest and greatest you know shiny brick that we keep in our pocket. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so. The there seems to be this sort of moniker over the whole thing uh, called progressive web apps, right? Um, this this idea of that, and and I don't mean this to sound cynical or anything, but a little bit like, could we get the web browser experience uh, to try to match what native apps can kind of inherently do in the device, right? Like, can we yeah. get to some kind of feature parity so you couldn't tell the difference? Is that yeah, accurate? I mean, like, yeah, I think that's it. I think you know the. First of all, you know, I think just throwing it out there that that progressive web apps as a term is very much like it's for marketing folks, and it's it's kind of kind of along the lines of um, if we remember back to the HTML five as a buzzword, not HTML five as the technology, or before that like DHTML or like right. all, all of these other like things that we've we've Web two point like all of these buzzwords that we've had that haven't really directly tied to you know a specific technology. I feel like progressive web apps kind of falls in that as well. Um, there are, you know, as, as browsers, when we think about, you know, what is, we, we think about PWAs in terms of an installability criteria when we're, when we're trying to create that sort of de desktop, uh, app like experience or mobile app like experience. Um, and there's three key features that we look for, for, to, to kind of signal that installability and to kind of light up those, those features. Um, one of which is the web app manifest, which is basically like a JSON, file filled with meta information about sort of the way you want your website to be represented within an operating system context, be that, you know, a, you know, a mobile device or a desktop device. Right. Um, and then there's the service worker, which allows you at, at kind of the most basic uh, 
marketplace to provide an offline, a basic offline experience and, and manage caching on your own. Um, and in order to have service worker, you also have to have HTTPS. So you have to be, have to be served securely. And so those become the three sort of signals to browsers that, Hey, this is something that is installable. And from there, um, you sort of have the ability to control the browser UI that's around you. So you could say, hey, you know, I don't want any browser UI at all. Um, in which case, you know, on, on mobile, you take over maybe the, the full screen or you have some sort of like minimal UI. Maybe you just have like the, the bar at the top that has like the time and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, on desktop, you can get rid of all the, the navigation. You can also do full screen. Um, there's a minimal UI option. There's just a straight up standalone option, which has a little bit more kind of browser Chrome that'll tell you like page titles and, and stuff like that that are happening. Um, there's some work currently underway to give you more control along the lines of what you would get with, say, building like an Electron app, um, where now all of a sudden you can push into that like traditional like title bar at the top on like a desktop right. app. Um, so that only the what we refer to as like the the caption controls or the the windowing controls. So like expand, collapse, you know, kind of the the three dots in Mac or the the various windowing controls in Windows. And that'd be something like uh, I, I don't know if they still do this, but Slack historically had yeah. been an Electron yeah. app, which is really yeah. just a wrapper that makes it feel like a like a desktop app, but it's all HTML. Yeah, yeah, it is. There are some additional APIs that allow you to tie deeper into the operating system that aren't available in in kind of your your typical browser space. Um, but yeah, this is sort of pushing that envelope. Spotify is another one that, that has used that, um, teams is a, another electron app, even VS code, uh, is an electron app. And so the ability to kind of control more of the way your, uh, effectively your website is rendered, uh, within the context of its own, um, window and being able to control that, which is kind of cool stuff. Um, so, and, and, and we'll see this sort of thing, I think, get, get taken up by especially productivity apps, I'm imagining. Um, certainly things, things like Teams, Slack, those, those sorts of apps, I think, will really um, reach for these sorts of features as they start to light up. Um, and there's a bunch more stuff that's currently in the works. A lot of it is incubating within um, the Chromium project, specifically in a, in a subset of uh, Chromium features called Project Fugu. Um, which we name that that for people who aren't familiar with Fugu. Fugu is the the Japanese name for the pufferfish. Um, <laughs> and in if you get pufferfish sushi, if the chef doesn't know how to prepare it properly, it can kill you. Um, right. Because I think the swim bladder, if they like nick the swim bladder, there's like a substance in there that can kill you. But yeah, so a lot of these are are features that like if we build them incorrectly, <laughs> we've done really bad things. So it'd be really like, that's like, it kind of reminds us that, that we're somewhat playing with fire, but yeah, there's a whole, whole slate of APIs that we're currently working on or investigating that continue to light up more and more of those native features. Like you're talking about to give the web a little bit more parity with what desktop has. So things that have already um, landed are things like being able to, to share from your browser to another app or to advertise your app as being able to be a share target. So Twitter uses this to be able to like have a file share, like an image shared to it. And now all of a sudden you can use that image in the tweet, right? Um, or you can share a link into Twitter from, from another web page. And different operating systems obviously have their own sort of share cards and, and their own share systems. And this is a way of tapping into that. Got it. Um, there are other things like file system access, which as, as I'm sure you could understand, you know, granting file system access, that's a really 
potentially scary proposition. So we need to figure out like what what's sort of the permissioning model around that for the web in general, and how does that potentially differ in the context of an installed PWA? Because you know if you're taking the step of installing it, you know you probably don't want to have to every time you open you know some uh, text editor or some uh, uh, you know writing program, you don't want to have to reauthorize it to access your file system because you've installed it and you're, you've got work to do, right? I don't know. Um, I, so I installed things... Big Sur uh, not too long ago, <laughs> and it seems like all I do is authorize things all day long. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fair. Yeah, that's that's another area. Like the, the permissions model of the web, I think is, it's good in theory, like the, the always like just in time, like asking yeah. for this, but then so many sites ask for things in rapid succession. Like anytime you install a new app, you all of a sudden get inundated, especially if it needs to use like camera, microphone, location, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just like this quick repetition of like, do you, will you allow this? Will you allow this? Will you allow this? And um, so I'm doing some investigations into, um, you know, could we do some sort of batch request similar to what Android had back in, uh, I think it was pre-Android 6, they used to have like a batch uh, permission enumeration when you went to install an app from the, the Play Store. Um, but you didn't have the ability to make any decisions on it. It was sort of an all or nothing. Like these are mm. what you're granting if you install this, which yep. I do not want at all. <laughs> um, but at least if, you know, let's say Teams or something like that was being installed, being able to say, okay, Teams, you know, very much wants access to your camera and your microphone in order to make calls. Like that makes sense. You know, the first time it runs for it to ask for those two things and in, right. in one dialogue as opposed to multiple would be ideal. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, just trying to figure out what what do we need in order to kind of bring the web up to to par and kind of improve that experience. And um, I mean, the reality is, as a as somebody who builds software, the web has a lot of capabilities now that it didn't used to have, and you can build a lot of stuff, um, like way more stuff, even than like five years ago. Um, you can build a lot of stuff using only web tech. And certainly there are a lot more people who understand web technologies and can, that you could hire to work on said project. Um, so the, the time to market becomes less, the cost of hiring those people becomes less. I think there's a lot of, um, value to be gained for going web versus native where, you know, you have to have a, a bespoke team for each operating system you want to go out to mm. and it just it, it can get really complicated really quickly and unless you have a a really good reason which you know certainly there are a lot of apps that do um that's a lot of investment right like especially if you're trying to to bootstrap a, a startup or something like that or do it on your own as a as a solo project or yeah whatever. yeah yeah for sure I, I have questions about that versus uh but let's take a little break uh and we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast web experience no matter how good your content or how effective your marketing. They'll most likely bounce if your website is loading too slow. With real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance issues affect your visitors' experience so you can take action and do so before your business is impacted. How your visitors experience your website differs depending on the browser, device, the platform they use. Uh, you can identify with Pingdom how your visitors are experiencing your website so that you can make informed optimizations to deliver great performance to those who matter the most. And 
did we mention that it's built for scalability? Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, meaning you can monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of your historical data or breaking the bank in the process. Get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, Use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, yeah, so uh, just before we uh, took a break there, you mentioned, like, should, you know, should I do a, an app, a native app, or you know, consider the progressive web app? And, and you, we started talking a little bit about uh, what the difference, um, you know, the pros and cons there. Uh, one of the things that I keep coming back to is, is this like this, this bargain you're making, this deal you're making with the app store providers, right? Like you got Apple and Google and Amazon to some extent to say like, uh, I want access to all these APIs, right? And all of this, you know, wealth of user data and all, all of the, and the distribution and stuff like that. Uh, and, it, and in exchange, uh, you can change the terms of service whenever you want. <laughs> like, right, and, and I know many founders of startups who are like, yeah. "Oh my God, I can't believe what Apple just did," or you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm obviously I'm a fan of both. Like, I think the stuff that Apple does around privacy is phenomenal, and mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think the reach that you know the Google Play Store and the App Store and stuff like that, unbelievable, great way to bootstrap a business. You know, is to is to try to get out uh, in there. But at the same time, it's, it can be really capricious, you know, like it could just yeah. change overnight. And suddenly the thing you were counting on isn't there anymore. Yeah, it's it really is. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to kind of consider. There's there's certainly kind of, you know, to to try and summarize what you're saying. There's there's like this gatekeeping aspect of like what you can do with sure. with your with your product. Um, you know, the, the flip side is on the Web. You know, you are to some degree, wholly dependent on the, not only the browser that you're running in or, or the runtime that's executing your code, but you're also dependent then on the operating system beyond that and what it exposes. Um, so if you're looking to use a cutting edge feature that you know just landed in Big Sur or, or whatever, um, that may not have like there's a lag, right? Because the yeah. the API has to be exposed within the operating system, and then the browser has to be able to consume it, and then has to make that available via a web API. So like you end up with this kind of like I don't know this this distancing and this this time stretch between when an API lands and when you can actually use it if you're using web tech. Yeah. And in the same way, things can also change on the web, I, or or implementations can vary. So geolocation, for instance, which is a is a API we've had around for a long time, there's been, you know, quite a few changes that have happened with that. So initially it could be used anywhere, then it got put behind HTTPS. So now you have to be in a secure context in order to use geolocation. So any site that wasn't, you know, all of a sudden their their code is broken because they they have no access to the geolocation API. Right. But then in in certain scenarios, there are browsers that like you can if you request permission and the user grants you permission to access their geo geolocation, it still gets reset every session. So I know Safari does this for sure. I think there are a couple of other browsers that do this as well, uh, perhaps uh, more in the mobile context than in the desktop context. But you still have to basically re-request -re that permission over and over again 
in some browsers. So it's it's like they're, the, the distribution of APIs and the accessibility of APIs becomes a little bit uneven as well in the web, which can be frustrating um, yeah. as a as a developer too. Um, so I think you know when when you're looking at you know should this be a web project or should this be a um, a native project, it really comes down to like what are what are the goals for my project? What am I trying to do? Um, what are the pros and cons of each of these different platforms? And really evaluating that. I, I did a piece a couple of years ago for uh, Smashing Magazine, actually talking about this mm. uh, as as something you know, looking at, you know, am I going to provide an identical experience on every platform, then, you know, probably web might make a little more sense if the APIs that I need are available, because then I can just build it once and deploy it to a bunch of different places. And whereas if there are specific APIs, or I want to really tailor the experience in iOS to be something that is like, very Mac-y, right, or or very Apple-y rather, then you know maybe it makes sense for me to to go all in on on that version and then do some other stuff. But to me, I mean, my my heart is always in the the camp of like how can I get the most reach, mm. and yep. I see that in in I see that being you know hugely a hugely successful approach for a lot of company. I mean companies. I mean I look at like WhatsApp. When WhatsApp was like before they were acquired by Facebook, WhatsApp was one of maybe 1,600, 2,000 chat apps in the uh, app store for iOS. Um, But they were also putting out WhatsApp on BlackBerry and on S60 devices and like all of these other, like what we would call smaller players. They were, you know, we were, they were looking outside of the bubble that we in the tech community often live in. And, And the reality is that you know, when we design for people that are like us, we exclude anybody who's not like us, right? So when, when yep. we only build stuff for uh, people who are on, you know, the latest and greatest version of iOS, everyone who's not on that and everyone who's on any other operating system or anything else can't use that product. When we build experiences that require a constant internet connection, that excludes anybody who doesn't have that or who has like a crappy intermittent network connection and stuff like that. So we make all of these design decisions that exclude potential users and current users and lower our ability to reach more people and have a successful business. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that, you know, the entirety of, of WhatsApp's value to Facebook could be, you know, attributed to, you know, the fact that they went out to series 60 devices and stuff like that. But I feel like that's, part of the picture, right? Yeah. That, that's how they were able to get as many users as they were able to get. And that's that's where the value was to, to Facebook is bringing all of those people into that ecosystem. Yeah, that's interesting. We, uh, uh, I've had a number of guests uh, on this show talking about uh, the um, uh, inclusivity in design and uh, you know broadening the design process uh, to be more inclusive, to to involve uh, more people from underrepresented communities um, uh, of every uh, shape and walk of life. Um, And the conversation is always often around how do we change the decision-making in corporations and how do we promote the value of this? But this is interesting because it's right down at the metal here, right? Mm -hmm. You're saying like, here are some, some really technical decisions like real technology decisions that are taking all of the stuff that we've been talking about in our society. And, and like, here's where you decide. 
right? Like, yeah. To some degree, yeah. you could say like, right here, you're defining the audience. Who has mm-hmm. access? Yep. And I think they're, you know, in my career, like like you said, I'm old. <laughs> you know, we, we've both been on the web for a really long time. So I've had a lot of lot of a uh, lot of experiences in this area. And I think, you know, two two things that stood out to me kind of in my history that have kind of reinforced this to me are um back in the day, a list apart um decided to no longer serve um, it's CSS to Netscape 4. So Netscape 4, that kind of gives you the sense of the timing. Let's go back, right? yeah. But what was weird was uh, when Jeffrey was doing a recap of this, and I, I can find the link for the, the show notes, but when all of a sudden Netscape 4 didn't get CSS anymore, the readership on Netscape 4 went up. And the reason was that like the experience was poor and we were artificially suppressing right. the number of people who were reading from Netscape 4, right? Yeah. Um, and in the same way, you know, I, I look at, I, we had a, a customer we were working with one time and we were talking about like what devices were in the market and what mobile devices were accessing their website. And they were being very dismissive. I think we were like, you know, what BlackBerry four or something like that. So again, you know, age, ages ago at this point, but, um, they're like, we don't have any users in, in BlackBerry four. And so we asked, you know, well, what is the experience like for somebody who's using BlackBerry four? Oh, it's horrible. Maybe that's why, like yeah. you know, and, yeah. and you know, all the people who would time and time again say, "Oh, we don't have any users who who don't have JavaScript," and I would say, "Really? How do you know?" And they're like, "Well, our analytics tells us that." I was like, "Well, what analytics are you using?" We're using Google Analytics. Well, that's JavaScript based. So if there's no JavaScript, you don't have any record that those people actually showed up and didn't have an experience. So you know, there's there's all of these ways that we kind of lull ourselves into this like false sense of security, and it's just reinforced by the fact that. When, when we look around our, our offices, or I guess now our Zoom chats, right, um, we see, you know, people who have the same devices as us, people who are, you know, getting the latest and greatest shiny rectangles for their, to put in their pockets. And, and the reality is that the world is much messier than that. You know, each time a new iPhone comes out, sales of the old ones you know, all of a sudden jump up. Um, and, and we kind of have seen this time and time again, because now all of a sudden those become affordable as all of the people who have lots of extra disposable income and feel like they need that latest and greatest shiny device, get rid of their old ones. And now all of a sudden people who you know may not be able to drop a grand on a phone um, are able to, to get that device. And so, you know, I, I think we, we end up in this, this, very myopic space where we're just, we're surrounded by people who have constant network connections, who have the latest and greatest shiny devices. And we think that that's the experience. Hmm. Um, I remember another client I was working with, they're, they're a retailer, like a drugstore chain, and uh, was starting to talk to them. This was after, after my book had come out and we were doing an engagement about progressive enhancement and, and that sort of stuff. And we were talking about device labs and I was asking them what they were using for testing at the time. And they're like, Oh, we have, you know, a couple of iPhones and we've got like one or two iPads. Um, and I think we have an Android phone in there somewhere. Um, and so I asked them like, okay, you guys sell cheap Android tablets. Do you have any of those in your device lab? And it was crickets on the phone. They, they just had not even occurred to them that they sell devices that people who shop at their stores may want to use to use their website. And, um, it was just, you know, these, these sorts of things happen. Um, and you know, we, we need to kind of break out of our, our comfort level and, 
this is kind of back to your your thing about about inclusion. You know, the the more our teams are um, heterogeneous um, or heterogeneous, heterogeneous. Um, you know, the more we have diversity in our teams, the more we have different people from different backgrounds, people with different lived experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, people with very different presence in terms of you know things that they're dealing with, whether they be disabilities, whether they be you know, the, they don't speak the dominant language or they're not from the dominant culture, like those all help to inform us and make us more aware of our customer base. So in reality, we should be seeking to have teams that represent our customers so that we can make sure that we're actually solving our customers' issues. Because if if we're just, you know, a bunch of cishet white men sitting around designing software for the masses, like we are not the majority <laughs> and we have to realize that we don't, we don't know what's best. And we need to have people on our team who are, you know, helping us to make good business decisions about how to reach people out, out in the world and, and solve their needs. Because that's what design is all about, right, is, is solving people's problems. Absolutely. I mean, it gets right to the core of, you know, the, the, the early values of the web around democratization and, and to, 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 to make available the tools of mass distribution, of publishing, of broadcasting and make them available to everybody. Um, and not like you say, the person with a twelve twelve hundred dollar uh, rectangle in their pocket. I, yeah, 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 for sure. Let's take a little break, uh, and we'll come right back and um, talk some more. All right, let's uh, take another break and hear from our friends at Microsoft, who have a new podcast uh, called The Inside Track, all about the automotive industry, how they're using technology. Uh, it's really cool. It's always fun to find a new podcast to listen to. Uh, this one is hosted by resident car guy, Carrie Lovell. Uh, the interviews that he does uh, are with industry experts, insiders, analysts, uh, and they, you know, they talk about long-term trends, evolving expectations that people have when buying cars and the effects of technology and how it's advancing and what that's doing to the automotive industry. The show covers a bunch of segments like how artificial intelligence is being used in automotive manufacturing, uh, what's going on with connected vehicles, uh, how they're using cloud simulations and, and intelligent infrastructure. They've got guests from uh, Audi and Toyota, Anata, uh, Anisys, SBD Automotive, loads of stuff to listen to. It's really, really interesting. I was listening to an episode recently that had a fascinating discussion about the design of self-driving cars. Uh, in particular, it looked at how AI and massive clusters of cloud servers are being used to simulate what these vehicles might experience and measure how they might react. Uh, all of this is being done to improve autonomous cars way faster than they could by driving them around in the real world. Uh, so really compelling stuff. Go have a listen. Uh, you just search for the inside track wherever you get your podcast or click the link uh, that I'll put in the show notes. So thanks to the Inside Track and Microsoft for their sh support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, all right. So throughout this conversation, you've you've been using the uh, the pronoun we. We we we're working on this. We, we you know we might get some of this into the browser. Who is the we? I, 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 are you talking about Microsoft is working on Chromium or or is it? So the broader standards committee. I'm like I'm curious how this stuff is being made and decided yeah. upon. Sure. So um, I would say that that varies based on you know what particular spec you're working on. Um, I use we interchangeably because it's it's or rather I use I use we because the we is interchangeable <laughs> depending on what it is I'm working on. Yeah. Um, 
So I'm an editor on two specs at the W3C. I work on the web, web app manifest, um, which, is, as I mentioned, is kind of like the metadata about how you want your site represented uh -huh. um, in the operating system. So things like your icon, the app name, those sorts of things. Um, and then I'm also editing a, a spec that's kind of a, a appendix to the web app manifest called the app information spec. And that is more focused on representation of an app within an app catalog. So thinking about how your PWA shows up in the Microsoft Store or in the Play Store or maybe eventually in the App Store from, from Apple or something like that. Um, and certainly there are a bunch of independent PWA catalogs as well. So um, so in, in that context, you know, I'm, I'm working with people from Google, people from Mozilla, people from Intel, um, people from Samsung, you know, kind of all over and then and then workaday developers as well and trying to gather their input. I certainly have a lot of partners that I'm engaged with um, that I you know kind of talk to about these things and float different ideas by them. Um, so I my we is like a collective we in that context. Um, in terms of PWA stuff, a lot of the work is taking place within the Chromium project as kind of like the I would say that's like the tip of the spear in terms of the the uh, PWA work. Because there is a lot of vested interest within both Google um, with their suite of productivity apps and, and stuff like that, sure, as well as within Microsoft with our suite of productivity apps and, and other, other sorts of services that we offer that, you know, really we want to be able to, to sing and, and, and do great things using web technologies. Um, but, you know, there, there are folks certainly from Mozilla in there, again, companies like Intel, um, there are also, you know, third parties like Boku and, um, Igalia and, and folks like that who, who do a lot of like one-off implementations of things like Igalia did a lot of the implementations of CSS grid in like WebKit and, uh, Chromium and, and that sort of thing. And that work was funded by Bloomberg, which is pretty cool. So like you have, you have companies that have like needs and want to fund something. And so like, they're like, okay, we're going to hire this team to build this thing. And they're going to build it for these open source engines. I'm now, sorry to interrupt, but I'm picturing actually Michael Bloomberg frustrated with his phone and saying like, <laughs> go fix the CSS. Like I'll give you, I'll give you a hundred million dollars. Go fix it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, we really need CSS grid. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's very much a collective effort. Um, there's a lot of activity happening within the Chromium project. And I think to some degree that is concerning for me as a longtime standards guy because I want more involvement from the other browser makers because I think we need that in order to make it successful. I don't want Chromium to be the only platform. Right. So, you know, I, I want to see uptake by WebKit. I want to see uptake by Mozilla and any other browsers that, that want to come along and, and implement this stuff as well. So, you know, I think we're, we're engaging with those groups as they have capacity a lot of it is about capacity and how much, you know, how much time they have, how much engineering time, how many resources they have to uh, devote to different projects that are taking place within their companies. And they obviously have their own priorities as well. But, you know, things are are improving. Apple's been, you know, they, they launched their service worker support mm. um, and that kind of continues to, to evolve. I don't think push notifications is there yet, but, you know, they're, they are making progress and they are certainly involved in the conversations at like the W3C level and stuff like that. Um, but I'm also very interested in having the community very much engaged in this work. Um, I remember back to, you know, just a, 
gosh, almost a decade ago, I guess now, um, when we were working on the responsive images. And, you know, this was a, a problem that, you know, a number of folks had kind of, you know, highlighted as, you know, how do we deal with the images really well within the context of responsive design? And yes, right. you can do the the resizing as as Ethan kind of outlined in, in his seminal work on the subject. But there, you know, we don't want to be loading really large images on very small devices. We we want to be, you know, really cognizant of bandwidth and that sort of stuff. Like I remember another anecdote, but I remember when the the um, Retina iPad launched yep. and I I was in Silicon Valley staying in a hotel at the time when the announcement happened. And I went to load the website for the new iPad on my laptop over the hotel Wi-Fi. It took 20 minutes <laughs> because they were all Retina images. And like that, that's just wrong. Right. <laughs> like, so responsive images were really necessary to, to be able to deliver the right content, right? To, to deliver the right size um, to the right device. Um, and that was very much a community-led effort. Uh, W3C spun up a community group focused on it. And you actually had, you know, the the in-the-trenches developers working on this. And then in concert with the, the browser vendors, but it was very community-driven. And I really want to see more of that. And so, you know, one of the other projects that I've done since I've been at Microsoft is I launched um, with uh, Stephanie Stymac, I uh, launched a project called Web, The Web We Want. Um, and that's at webwewant.fyi if folks want to check that out. But it's a it's a way to basically solicit ideas from the web community. You know, kind of a, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and fix some problem that's blocking you on the web, what would that be? And, you know, so that we can take that information and try and solve the needs of developers in order to, you know, unblock them and help to help to make the web better or designers or, or whoever. Um, and so that's, that's very much where I want us to be, where we're actually being very transparent and very community driven in terms of what we're trying to do. And, and we're looking at ways to kind of improve on uh, the system that we've got at Web We Want to actually allow companies to sign up and say like, hey, this, yes, this is my problem, kind of like Bloomberg did with Grid, right? Like this is something that would really unblock us. Um, some companies are are reticent to uh, to kind of say which things are, are blocking them in public because sure. it might give away plans and stuff like that. But um, but others are, are very much like Twitter. You'll see on occasion, they'll, they'll pop into something on the the web app manifest or, or some of the other um, bits that I'm working on and they'll be like, Hey, yeah, we, we really would like that. Like I was working on shortcuts, which if you um, think it's force touch on iOS and like long press on Android on the app icon, it gives you like some, a little menu of, of quick actions you could do. Right. Um, so, and same thing in, in desktop, you could right click on an icon and, and get some uh, actions from it on windows and Mac and Linux and stuff. Um, so we authored a spec around that, and that's part of the web app manifest now. And you can you can do that same thing for PWAs, which is pretty cool. Um, and so getting getting that community buy-in, also getting you know partners involved who are not browser makers who just could could benefit greatly from from these things is really key uh, to me. And I'd I'd like to have that process be as as transparent and open as possible. I think that's really cool that there is still an opportunity even at the grassroots level, even at the individual contributor level, to say like I think the the, the fundamental technology of the web could be a little better. Uh, yeah. And I have an idea and you know, yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, I mean, we got one the other day, well, a couple, couple of months ago now that was like, I really want a, a tag to be able to mark an amount and be able to say what it is. And so like, this is a monetary amount and it's in dollars or this is a weight amount and it's in pounds. 
And that unlocks the ability to then, you know, translate that, for instance, to yeah. another system from, uh, you know, to metric or, or you know, to another, uh, another uh, currency or, or something like that, which is kind of an interesting idea. And it's like, these little things become become very interesting possibilities for the future of the web and ways to improve it. That's great. So it was uh, webwewant.fyi. I'll put a link to that to the sh- in the show notes. Where, where else can uh, people learn more or see what you're up to and things like that? Um, let's see. Probably Twitter is the, the best place to follow me. And I'm, I'm just at Aaron Gustafson there. Um, and then I'm also at Aaron-Gustafson.com. I, I very rarely write on there these days because I've just been so busy with other things, um, you know, pandemic and all. But uh, <laughs> yeah. usually there, usually Twitter, Twitter is the, the best place. And then certainly the, uh, the various specs that I write on, if, if folks have ideas for things they'd like to improve the web, and that could include like tooling that they want in the browser that, you know, that we're open to sort of any suggestions, what we want's a, a great place to send that in. Um, yeah, those are pretty much the best places. Fantastic. That's great. Well, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great to catch up. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable.